This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to week six of our study on the life of Peter and to John chapter 21, which is one of my very favorite chapters because it is the chapter in which Jesus restores Peter back to the ministry, basically. Peter, when we last Mm -hmm. saw Peter, he had denied Christ and fled. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and then there was the day, the Sunday after the resurrection, and Jesus and Peter encountered each other, but didn't really have time to talk. You know, there was not a mm-hmm. – this issue of the denials wasn't settled, and this chapter is where all of that is taken care of. Um, has to be one of your favorite chapters too, Sam. Yeah, this is. This is actually kind of meaningful because it has – this passage has healed me in the past of some failures I had, where it's like you kind of, you try and step into the shoes of Peter, and, you know, you just feel Christ restoring people that are broken, that are carrying around shame and guilt over things that they've done, and uh, has used this particular chapter of Scripture to, to heal and to minister to me, for sure. Yeah. The interesting thing to me as I as I was studying this uh, last week, actually, to do the study notes for this week, we all know the, you know, Peter, do you love me, the, re- the restoring questions here. But it begins, actually, with something that feels like an echo of mm-hmm. the uh, Luke chapter 5 passage we looked at back on the very first week of our Life of Peter study, where Jesus mm-hmm. calls Peter to the ministry. Yeah. And I feel almost like, you know, because one of the things I had to think about was why did this happen? Why did the chapter sort of begin this way? Why did Jesus do this whole thing of from the beach and talking to them before he kind of got to the business of restoring Peter? And I think that in a way he wants us to see this as a sort of a reset of the call. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we're starting over. I have no doubt because he's going to have a hard conversation with Peter, Right. But before he gets to the hard conversation where he's asking all the questions of Peter that are going to really pierce Peter to the core, it's like he replays the calling. Um, you know, that, that moment when, when they're out fishing and they haven't caught anything. I mean, all of those details are going to be retold here. And so it's almost like before they even have the conversation and Peter's walking around wondering what the Lord is going to say about his denials and all that stuff, Jesus in his kindness, God and his sovereignty playing this out is like replaying the calling of Peter. And it's like subtly, you got to imagine Peter later on is replaying this in his mind going, he was telling me that he was still calling me before right. we ever had to have the conversation. It's like God extends by, by replaying Peter's calling. It's like God is saying, you're mine. Yeah. You're on my team and I want you before you even have to worry about what to say. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's look at it. It's John chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, uh, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, mm-hmm. Thomas— Tiberias, by the way, that, yeah. that Sea of Tiberias, this is Galilee, the okay. Sea of Galilee. It goes by a few names. It's not a reference to James Tiberius Kirk. It's not a Star Trek <laughs> reference. Yeah. Every yeah, time correct. I've ever read Siri, every, I know there were a lot of people worried about that. Every time I've ever read the Sea of Tiberius, I've thought James T. Kirk because that was Tiberius was his <laughs> middle name. Uh, okay, verse two: Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, "I am going fishing." They said to him, "We will go with you." They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Um, when I was studying this again, reading different commentators, some commentators were kind of hard on Peter here, saying that mm-hmm. that Peter was basically giving up, that he was going back to his old life, that he was, uh, you know, just like, all right, fine, Jesus is gone, I'm going fishing. But I don't really feel like that's the case, honestly. The more I looked at it and thought about it and read, and I remember reading in Luke chapter 8 where it was talking about the fact that um, – 
that some of other some of Jesus's other followers were sharing financially and generously with Jesus and the disciples that that you know they were provided for kind of like how ministers today are provided for i mean the people mm-hmm. gave money and and so that was used for their support and so i think peter here's just kind of being practical he's like guys we got to do something to eat <laughs> well, yeah and you jesus know? had told them after the resurrection that he was going to go to galilee and so that's the reason why they are back up here. It's not like they were like, oh, well, I guess that chapter of our life is over. Right. Um, they've had the encounter with the resurrected Lord. I don't think, I mean, and at that encounter, you know, Jesus, it's not like Jesus is like, okay, it's over. So I think they're they're in a holding pattern. They, they're waiting for additional instruction. And I think you're right. You know, they, He's a fisherman. They back to, that's right. He fishes. That's right. Yeah. So what's uh, interesting is I wonder whose boat it was. That's <laughs> true. James, James and John's dad, who owned the fishing business. I guess they go back to Capernaum and say, "Hey, can can we borrow a boat?" Because <laughs> remember, they left all their stuff. That's true. They did. They left everything behind last time. So they they go out and go fishing, but they had the same result, which is they didn't catch anything. Um, and then verse four it says, "Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus." Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. I have to imagine, just thinking about that exchange, first of all, the first question that occurred to me, Sam, when I read that is, uh, and maybe you have an opinion about this, why was it that, again, this thing of Jesus, they didn't know that it was Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel like Jesus was concealing himself in some way, or was it just they were too far from shore? Or I guess because it seems like we had this thing with Mary where she didn't recognize him. And we mm-hmm. have the thing on the, with the when he appears um, in Luke to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he conceals himself. Is Jesus concealing himself, or, is, or what do you think is going on here? Just too far from shore? I, I don't know, but I think for sure too far from shore at this point. But even later, it'll say that the disciples didn't want to ask if it was really him. Yeah. Like there's there's this kind of bizarre line that comes later when they're on the beach and it says none of the disciples dared ask him who are you. <laughs> so I mean it's it's kind of this sense of are they are they afraid to ask him like are you really the Lord? Are you Jesus? Like you don't you don't it doesn't define it for you. And so there's part of me and again this is this is one of those places where it's totally open to conjecture. Right. Everybody has an opinion on this and the scripture doesn't you know nail down anything. Right. But we're told in Isaiah 53 that when Jesus came for his earthly ministry, um, that he did not have a stately appearance. He didn't have this kind of look where everyone would go, oh my gosh, this guy is majestic. Let's, let's follow him. In fact, he came as a very ordinary looking person so that he had no external privilege. It would be purely by his word and his heart that you would want to follow him. And so there's something about it, like, you know, when when we're told that his, at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, that his face was transfigured before them. It's not just that it was brightened. The word literally means metamorphosized. It changes. Um, that's the Greek behind it, is that word metamorphosis. But it, it changes. And so there's part of me that wonders, like, when we see Jesus in glory, he's still going to be a human being, right? Sure. But I don't think he's going to be comely, you know, that that kind of not impressive. In fact, we know that's not true from the way that John describes him in the heavenly vision. Like, he's radiant, you know, he is, he's very beautiful in, in his appearance. And so there's part of me that wonders if there is a change of appearance. You know, I, I'm not sure. But they, but they certainly recognize him. I, you know, I don't know if it's uh... – I don't know if I'm being blasphemous or or disrespectful here to say that when I'm told that we're going to be like him, you know, we're going to have bodies like his uh, mm-hmm. elsewhere, that I'm thinking maybe there's hope for us yet, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe there's going to be a point where the people are going to, where someone's going to look at me and go, wow, that's a handsome fella. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't want to get there and for for the angels to be like, okay, there's the elliptical, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, oh my goodness. So, and, and then then Jesus refers to them as children, too. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is it about that? By him calling them children. So the word is paideon, and it literally means it can mean anything from you know a toddler. It's somebody who's still really growing is mm-hmm. the kind of the idea. 
And you know, I've read commentaries that say, you know, from a British commentator, which you can kind of hear in, in what he says, is this would be the equivalent of saying, you know, lads. Sure. Um, the word that's the same word that Jesus uses repeatedly. You know, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are like little children. children. Okay. It's it's those that are that are humbled that recognize that they need to grow. They're under authority and they're learning. Right. Is kind of the the connotation of that word. Hmm. Um, it's where we get the pedagogy, which is a g- word for teaching. It comes from paideon, and so it's someone who's learning. That's what that word means. So it's it's hey. Lads, those that are still growing and humbled, do you have any fish? So it would be their first big clue that uh, this Mm -hmm. guy on the beach knew who they were anyways. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but but he's not calling them toddlers. You know, some people read this like, "Mm, is he being condescending? No, not at all. Yeah. Well, uh, now we're going to see the difference between when we uh, decide to do things on our own, which is Peter's like, I'm going to go fishing. And they went out and fished all night and caught nothing. And when the Lord directs our nets, <laughs> uh, verse six, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. An interesting note, you know, uh, sort of a, a cultural note. I did some reading on these fishing boats and the they had a steering oar that was mounted on the right side of the boat. That's where mm-hmm. they used to use to steer the boat. And so it wasn't typical for the fishermen of that day to cast their net on the right side of the boat. They would, they would, if they wanted to cast the net over there, they'd turn the boat and cast on the left side. It was just casting on the left side of the boat was the normal thing. So being told by this fellow on the beach to cast their net again after not catching anything all night, no doubt they're tired, they're frustrated, been fishing all night, and being told to cast it on the quote-unquote wrong side of the boat um, you know, this kind of like everything was wrong about this request, and yet they, <laughs> yet they did it. Yeah, and I have to wonder whether they. I know, I know that John is going to be the one that says it's the Lord, but I'm thinking that all of them are looking at each other at this point, going, "Hey guys, do you? Re- is this? Uh, do you remember mm-hmm. the last time this? You know? Yeah. This this feels familiar. It does a sense of deja vu <laughs> here, uh, because that's the same thing that happened in Luke five. Is that they'd been fishing all night, caught nothing, and Jesus said. Go out and put your net in again, and then they they caught a huge amount of fish. Then so much so in Luke that it says the boat began to sink, <laughs> yeah, and the nets were breaking. Yeah, yeah. And this time it feels even more absurd because that time at least Peter had kind of come up. He's starting to mend his nets. He'd given the water time to change. But here Jesus is like, hey, you're in the middle of this. You're you're actively fishing right now. But just throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and you'll catch some. And it's absurd because. <laughs> There are fish there. It doesn't matter which side of the boat you're on. You're in a boat that's drifting with nets and everything else. Like, it's it's absurd to say. It'd be like saying, oh, don't go on this side of the boat. Go on this side of the boat because over there there's alligators. But on this side, <laughs> you know, it's like it's water. They move, you know, yeah. like – and so to say, oh, you'll catch them if you throw it on the other side of the boat would have sounded utterly ludicrous. It's an absurd request. But, you know, they do it for some reason. Yeah. And I think it's what you're talking about. This this feels familiar. It's it's at least hope. Yeah. You know, at this point they're they're out of options. They've been out there all night. They have failed. Why not try something different? And the other thing that I I believe is, and I mean we don't know this because we've not bodily and in person stood in front of Jesus and talked with him. But I have this picture of Jesus in my mind as being one of the most as being so compelling. It's like when he suggests to something to someone, it's like you you just want to do anything that he suggests. Hmm. Um, I really have that feeling about him. It, it just it. Um, I don't know where that comes from. If that's just like, hey, I, it's a it's a it's like that's my own private fantasy. Is I want to have that kind of a, you know leader. Is like to, I just want to be able to. I don't know what it is. Um, yeah. Whether it's a I'm reading about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia or, or something. I don't know. But this idea. That that um, I feel, I just feel like Jesus is a compelling person in person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and there's there's an element to even though he may have his identity veiled or might his voice might have even sounded different. You know, there's right. something Jesus himself says, "My sheep hear my voice, and they know it." Yeah, um, yeah and here he is commanding those that are in his flock, and they might not be able to put their finger on it, but they obey. They, there's something in them that instinctively trusts, is, is willing to trust the advice of this strange character on the shoreline. Yeah. 
So now they've got a net full of fish that they <laughs> that they can't haul in. Uh, and verse 7 tells us, That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, mm-hmm. therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. I, I, that is such mm-hmm. a Peter thing to do, is it not? It's such a Peter thing to do, and that is one of my favorite glimpses into the character of who Jesus is. Um, and, and this is why I say that. You know, the, if you remember the last encounter that we know of between Peter and Jesus is in the denials where they, you know, one-on-one, Peter had denied him that third time and the rooster crows and Jesus mm-hmm. looks at him and Peter runs off and weeps bitterly and they haven't resolved that. And here's John who who recognizes what's going on here, and he says, it's the Lord. And you got to imagine, like so many people, um, when they feel like they have failed God, you know, you want to run away. You don't want to pray hide. anymore. Sure, you want to hide. hide. Yeah. You, you, you know, it's like you're waiting for Peter to kind of slink down into the boat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did, did he see me? Yeah. Um, but he doesn't do that. Out of respect, he puts on his outer garment because that's you know what you would do for a rabbi to show honor. You didn't go in front of him with just undergarments. So he puts on his outer garment, and he dives into the water um, and is swimming to Jesus as fast as he can get to them. And I love the difference between – let's put the two stories next to each other, the calling – where they have all of these same things happen, right? The big catch after a night of catching nothing. And what is Peter's response when he realizes who Jesus is? He says, get away from me. I'm a sinful yeah. man. Yeah, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And here he is in the boat, probably feeling the weight of his own sin far greater than he ever had before. He's just denied God uh, patently to his face. Right. And in the trauma and weight and agony of that sin, Peter's demeanor has changed. Why? Because he knows Jesus now. Mm-hmm. He knows what's waiting for him on the shore. He knows it's not going to be a rebuke, or like a serious stern rebuke and a dismissal. He knows he's going to be embraced. And so Peter, it's like the first time he's like, depart from me, I'm a sinner. And this time he's like, I'm a sinner. I desperately need to get to you as fast as I possibly can. Right. And those that know the heart of the Savior, that's the response to being caught in sin. I need to get to Jesus as fast as I can. Yeah. Yes. And I also think it may be the second time that Peter walked on water. <laughs> uh, you know, you, ha- you, you have that picture of one of those sort of cartoon moments, right, where his feet start going so fast that they're blurring, yeah. and he jumps out of the boat and just runs on the top of the water like a like a loon getting ready to take off. If you've ever seen those those water birds, those loons, that's what they do. I'm just wait, waiting to hear the drums going. Yes, yeah. So, so so they he gets to the shore first, obviously, and the one thing that we're not told, and of course, this is my little speculation, mind. Don't be no one. No one who listens to this podcast is surprised that this is what I'm wondering. But I'm wondering what the conversation was between Jesus and Peter before the rest of the guys got to the shore. Hmm. I'm just you know it's not recorded there. We don't know. But what we do know is that Peter left the boat before everybody else did, and so it's reasonable to assume that Peter reached Jesus on the beach before the boat came to shore, which means that there were words exchanged. Hmm. And I'm you know I would love to know what was said, but. That's yeah. just me. I'd be uh, willing to bet my house there was at least a hug. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think so. One of the other things that I love about this is in, in the first calling, you know, Peter and Jesus have this exchange, and Peter falls on his face, and Jesus says, follow me, I'm going to make you a fisherman. And then it says that Peter left everything. He leaves the nets, the boats, the fish, everything. And this time, it doesn't it doesn't take <laughs> that encounter Peter hears that it's the Lord, and he dives out of the boat. And what has he left? He's left his friends, which probably they didn't appreciate, (laughs) to row in all this stuff. He left the fish. He left the nets. He left the boats. It's like immediately he's willing to abandon all of that stuff when he hears that it's the Lord's. That's the the deep heart of affection that Peter has for Jesus. You just see how much his heart yearns to be with Jesus. So then uh, verse 8 tells us the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. They, remember, they couldn't get it in the boat, so they're towing the net <laughs> beside the boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a 100 yards off. 
when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon hmm. Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. There's a number of things that, that interested me here because I think that mm-hmm. obviously the fishing, the net, the catching, that's symbolic of what Jesus wanted them to be. You're going to be mm-hmm. fishers of men. And mm-hmm. so everything about this story, I think, was communicating something to me about that process of the gospel ministry, which is Jesus told them where to cast the net, and then there was fish in the net. If, if I'm throwing the net randomly, <laughs> like, wee, wherever I'm going— I'm catching nothing. But if I listen to the Lord and the Lord tells me where to cast the net, the net's going to come back full. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was interesting, though, that when they got to land, Jesus already had fish. Yeah, wasn't that cool? And, And so it's, you know, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, you know what? God doesn't need my help. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to have my help. He can get fish without me. He chooses. He says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. He chooses to in, to involve us in mm-hmm. the gospel ministry, but it's not from a position of, well, if we don't help God, God can't do anything. That's not the case. He's mm-hmm. He is graciously allowing us to be part of this process, but he doesn't really need us. Mm-hmm. And his heart toward his disciples is not, come serve me. You know, it's like he he built a fire. He put fish out on it. Yes. He's already cooked a meal for them. And then when they show up, he's like, oh, okay, well, we'll take some of your fish, too. Come on, yeah, bring it on. You know, but he's already prepared a meal for them. You know, I was reading one commentary, and I think this is a bit of a stretch, but it shows the same heart for God. Not long ago, we were in the series on First Kings, and when... When Elijah was in the middle of his season of discouragement and ministry, what does God do for him? He finds him in the middle of the desert and makes him a meal. Yeah. And here's Jesus taking all of his disciples who have to be disoriented after the crucifixion and resurrection, wondering what in the world's going on, and he makes a meal for them. Like the hospitable nature of God toward his servants is awesome. And and to see the humility of God, even after the resurrection, like, okay, he's he's kind of done his work. He's done his part, and it's like, okay, now you go do stuff. No, he's still serving his disciples with mm-hmm. that humility. I love that. It just shows so much about his heart. He's such a good God. And it also shows that that his desire is to enjoy really the simple time, the simple pleasure with his people. It's like, mm-hmm. you know – Let's just have breakfast. <laughs> you know, it's like we're we're done with all the hard work. Now let's enjoy each other's company. Let's be together and enjoy each other. Um, the other thing that was interesting, uh, verse eleven, of course, said that there were one hundred and fifty three fish. And the commentaries that I read, Sam, were it was like mm-hmm. it was like open season, bonkers day. <laughs> Everybody had a thought what one hundred and fifty three meant. There was one guy that said it was the number of of languages in the world. Mm-hmm. One guy said it was the number of fish species in the Sea of Galilee. Somebody else mm-hmm. said it was the number of known people groups in the world at the time. There were all these different things. And the more that I read it, and the more I thought about these things, I'm like. This you is know, crazy. It's crazy. I, 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 honestly, why does it say there's 153 fish? Because John wrote the account. What was John? John was a fisherman. What do fishermen know? They always know how many fish they caught. <laughs> yeah, they're counting. They're keeping their records. They are. It's like yeah. that convinces me that a professional fisherman was involved here. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that it's random, one of the things I've heard from a, a modern-day apologist is the fact that it's so random, 153, like that's – kind of intentional on its own is that it's such a random number that it shows the veracity of it. Like it's trustworthy. This is the real count. Yeah. Um, Otherwise they would have said 150, but it's 153. What a strange number. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I heard Jerome, who was an early church father who translated the Bible into Latin. um, He's the one who said that the 153 represented all the different species of fish. And he used to preach and teach that, that was representative that the gospel was made for all nations, mm-hmm. all different types of people, and that's where that teaching came from. But that was the most popular in the early church. I think it's I think it's a stretch, but yeah, I don't think that that's a wrong idea. Which is the yeah, gospel for everybody? Then. Yeah, uh, you know, and and to say but there's more than 153 species of fish, right? There we are. know that, <laughs> and and I think that, and I do think that the that what's being communicated here is that 
you know, if the Lord tells if the Lord tells you to go fishing, you're going to catch a variety of things. You know, mm-hmm. whatever that is. How it, it, there's there were a lot of fish in the net. So you're going to have mm-hmm. if if you're following the Lord's command, your ministry is going to catch a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I think is interesting here, Sam. It says although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now the last time the nets were breaking. And this mm-hmm. time the net was not torn. And I do think that there may be something symbolic there in saying that from now on, guys, this is the real deal. This is, it's going to be, a, you guys are going to be effective. He's like, when you catch them, they're caught. You know, mm-hmm. this is kind of me. I just kind of felt like it was a, the fact that that detail is there. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. Again, that could just be the professional fisherman making a note. Hey, the net didn't tear. Um, but I also think that the, Jesus didn't want the net to tear because he wanted them to understand that when I tell you to cast the net in, you do it. You, the net is full. There's a big variety. The net won't tear. You can trust. There's this feeling of solidity there. It's like you mm-hmm. can trust it because Jesus said, throw the net. Yeah. That's the gospel ministry. It is not going to tear. Right. It's, it's a sure thing. I think you're right there. Yeah. Now, and I do think God sovereignly and kind of poetically putting this history together and, and putting the events of the story together, I think he does give us details like that. Because he's already made the comparison. When Peter was first called, he says, you are going to be a fisher of men. Right. And so God has invited us to see that that comparison. And so the fact that the net's not torn, well, what is it that catches men? It's the gospel ministry. It's the Spirit of God. And that is not going to tear. It's not going to break. You can trust in it. Right. You know, your words might, your efforts might, you might, but the gospel and the Spirit of God will not. Right. And that's that's what we have. That's our weapons that we you know, spiritually speaking, that's what we cast. Mm-hmm. That's not going to break. That's not going to tear. Right. Right. And I one of the other things is the 153 you think, "Oh my goodness, that's such an amazing catch." But when Peter puts this into practice for real and on Pentecost he gives this sermon in Jerusalem, he it's not 153, it's 3,000. Yes. who who, who come on to day know one. the Lord. Yeah. And that's that's impressive. So God, God under promises there in yeah. the in the metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> um, are we going to be? We're going to be doing that chapter, aren't we? As part of this, isn't that the isn't the day of Pentecost in here somewhere? Pentecost, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the the this one is restoration is this Sunday, right. and then Pentecost will be July eighth okay. or August eighth. Okay. Because I'm really looking forward to talking about that chapter too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, if we, I love Pentecost. if that wasn't on the schedule, I was going to start talking about some things from there now. But <laughs> I can wait. You know, the, that's another great, great chapter. And there's lots of mm-hmm. things in there that I've, as I've studied that chapter over the years, I'm like, man, this is very meaningful. These these symbols, you know, they, mm-hmm. there's so much being communicated in these things. So mm-hmm. it's rich. So verse 12, Jesus said to them, "Come and have breakfast." Which, folks, right there, let me tell you something. Jesus could have said, okay, guys, we have to have a talk. You know, everybody gather around. <laughs> no, his first thought was, come and have breakfast. You know, it's like, th- that's so amazingly kind and his concern. Mm-hmm. You guys are going to be hungry. Let's, let's eat before we talk. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, man, God is so gracious to them here. And in the ancient world, sharing a meal with somebody was a strong symbol of friendship. Yes. Um, you know, to welcome them to your table was a and, – and so here they are. You yeah. know, remember, this is the aftermath where they all ran away. You know, we give Peter a hard time for denying, but the rest of them ran away. They didn't even have a chance to deny. Yeah. And so here you have God opening the table to them before they've even said, I'm sorry. This is where he said – of course, this is where it says, none of the, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. <laughs> uh, but there is something that is kind of interesting that, you know, that there was at least that impulse to say, who are you? Um, yeah. I, I do think that and, there's something different about his appearance. I, I think so. And, and there might be. And for those who, who've heard us talk about that and kind of roll their eyes, I, that's equally valid of a point because one of the things I'll tell you is when Jesus went to the cross, his body – his arms, his legs, his face, everything about him was so utterly marred that when Isaiah wrote prophetically about him, it said he was hardly recognizable as human. And so if Jesus showed up to them with only scars on his hand and feet and side, and the rest of him is now recognizable, and it's been just you know weeks, right? They have to be going, how is this possible? Who are right. you? Right, right. Um, 
so you could go either way with it. But yeah. in any case, th- this is supernatural. They are stumped. Yeah. And they're by the way, they're skeptical. They're like, uh, I don't trust this, but I don't know what else to make of it. And I also think, by the way, that there's symbolism in that. It's like Jesus chose to carry in his body the marks of the nails and the thrust in his side, the wounds that he received mm-hmm. on the cross. But he mm-hmm. shrugged off the wounds that he was given by the Romans before. You know, there's mm-hmm. something about that. It's like these wounds – I have chosen to carry for you. Yeah, it's purely commemorative. Yes, and and I do think that's I think that's significant because it's mm-hmm. this idea that he you know the, the the punishment that he was handed by the Romans and 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 the torture and the scourging and all these other things he just pushed that away. Mm-hmm. But this other thing, the, the wounds from the cross, he he carries with him. Yeah, that's his proof of purchase. Yeah, you know, it's like he's 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 standing with his disciples, and it's like this is this is how much I love you. This yeah. is what you cost me. That's a good way to look at it. Proof of purchase. I like that. Uh, verse thirteen. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Uh, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We have the first two that were recorded in John 20, the locked room, and then eight days later, again, mm-hmm. appearing to them. So now this is the third time that Jesus yeah. was revealed to the disciples. Yeah, and it's when it says to the disciples, it's meaning to the collective group. Because if you go through the synoptic gospels, there's other times where he appears to one or two. Uh, but in this case, it's it's collectively. Right. To the bunch and one of, of the other, yeah, and this, by the way, and in this particular time period in history, we've talked about this before. When when the Greek culture had such a negative view of of a bodily resurrection, they wanted it just to be this disembodied spirit that was free of all the restraints of the body. When it says that he sits down and, and eats fish with them, you know, welcomes them to breakfast, that is to say he is physical. Right. He's not he's not a phantasm or a ghost in front of them. Like he is resurrected. He's eating fish with them. Yeah. I mean, that's something that uh the two big religious leader groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. I mean, yeah. that was like a big thing with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because and that's why they're sad, you see. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. I remember that from from Bible school. I, can, <laughs> I used to teach it in yes. middle school. That was a line I used many yeah. times. How do you know which one didn't <laughs> believe in the resurrection? It was the Sadducees. They were sad, you see. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, anyway. I used to do the Pharisees being unfair, you see. Ah, it doesn't work as well. It doesn't, it doesn't work as well. It doesn't work as well, but it is accurate. They were the very, <laughs> you know, they were the ones who were like, really, you know, you're going to obey all the little tiny rules. They, you tithe from your herbs, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, verse 15 is where we get into the actual conversation between Jesus and Peter. Verse 15, mm-hmm. when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. One thing here now, why Simon, son of John, like Jesus wanted to remind us who Peter's father was. What's the meaning of of that, do you think? So so this is where things, and, and I don't know if you have the same take on this, but this is where Jesus, he's, he's shown remarkable compassion. He's, he's laid out these events like, Peter, I'm calling you again. You're mine. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've prepared a breakfast for you. I'm sharing a table with you. But now we know that Jesus has taken Peter aside, and they're walking together. And we know right. that because later on it says, you know, John was following them. So they're right. walking together. He's taken them away. He's not shaming them in front of everyone else. Uh, which is kind of Jesus. And he says, Simon, son of John, which is not the name he'd been given, Cephas or Cephas, you know, Peter, which means rock. All of a sudden now he's calling him Simon again, which is his given name. And there's some people who say, you know, it's like he really is going back to the beginning. He's kind of just torn down everything mm-hmm. and he's rebuilding Peter. And he says, Simon, not Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And that would have been a question <laughs> that would have cut Peter to the core. And the reason for that was Peter throughout his life is always looking to be the top dog. You know, you, you say dad mode. You oh, know, yeah. where, I'm in charge. I'm the yeah. best. I'm the leader. And in fact, at the Last Supper, if you read Matthew 26, when Jesus is saying, you know, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to fail me. Peter, you know chimes in and says, even if all of them fall away, I never will. I'll die for you, kind of an attitude. And it's like he's saying in front of all of them, I'm a better disciple. 
I love you more. I'll go to the ends of the earth for you, Jesus, even if they all fail. And now you have this cutting question where Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Do, do you still consider yourself better than them? And and the question, the, the, the Greek word for love here, this is a play, you, you bring this out in the personal worship notes, but the word love and the question is agapao. It's the root word. It's the verb where we get agape, the noun. It's it's a kind of love that's like a covenant love. It's a mm-hmm. marital love. It's a decision of the will. It's an I'm all in, come hell or high water, even when I don't want to, when I don't like you, I am committed to you no matter what the cost. And so Jesus says to Peter, are you all in, no matter the cost, more than them? And Peter's response, which you can't see in the English, but in the Greek it's very telling. Peter responds to him and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he changes the Greek word. He doesn't, he doesn't say back to Jesus using agapao love. He uses phileo love. And that, that kind of love, phileo, is affection. Mm-hmm. I really like you. You're a good friend to me. I Are enjoy you. Are you fond of me? You're I'm fond, fond of me. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm fond of And so now imagine these questions. Peter, are you all in? At any cost, willing to follow me, no matter what, come hell or high water, are you totally committed, covenant with me more than these? And Peter's like, well, I'm, I'm very fond of you. Yeah. I, I like you a lot. And Jesus, you know, that's not the question that Jesus had posed to him. Yeah. And so one of the things that this brings out, and this is such a dangerous thing, and what Jesus is doing in this entire exchange is he's... He's trying to get Peter to understand that to be a disciple, you have to take your eyes off yourself and how you rank. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the dangerous things is if I'm in a church, let's say I'm in a church and I'm surrounded by people that I just don't think care about Jesus. They're not very good disciples. If I'm comparing myself to them, I'm going to pat myself on the back and I'm going to say, you know what, compared to them, I'm in really good shape. Even though, if in, even though in front of the Lord, I might be totally not living up to my potential. I might be withholding things. I might be sinning. But I'm comfortable because I'm better than them. And you can get stale Christianity when you look around and say, well, at least I'm better than them. Or let's say, <laughs> let's say you put me in the midst of the early church fathers whose <laughs> faith was unbelievably intense and rich and amazing. Right. If you put me in the midst of them, I would feel like, a f- utter failure. I, I'm, I do not live up to the kind of intensity of faith these guys have. And so this first question, like, Peter, do you love me more than all of them? And Peter's swallowing those words. He's, he's shamed by what he's saying. And notice what, what Jesus says to Peter here is not, well, then, you need to fix that. He just says, feed my lambs. And what's, what is that? It's, I want you to love them for me. Mm-hmm. In other words, take your eyes entirely off of you. Here's my command. You, you want to love me. You want to show that you're all in for me. Take care of them. Feed my lambs and do that for me. Right. Take your eyes off of yourself and love them. That's how you can show me that you agapao me. Yeah. You know, before Peter could be Cephas, before he could be the rock, you know, before mm-hmm. he could be that kind of thing, Peter needed to think less of peter (laughs) (laughs) totally and you know and the denials you would think were rock bottom i mean i I know that i've I've heard the sermon preached that way this was rock bottom for peter and i don't think it was i think Mm -hmm. this question was rock bottom for peter i absolutely agree with you this is when jesus when peter had to confront the fact that i am not better than them yeah and the cool thing about this is you know jesus combines this piercing penetrating, unbelievably convicting question, right? And they're only going to get more convicting as he goes. And it's just crushing Peter. But then notice when he says, feed my lambs, it's like he's saying, you're still my guy. Yeah. You're still the one. I want shepherding my flock. But I'm going to come and I'm going to confront you with some really powerful questions that are going to cut you to the core because you're not where you should be yet. Do you love me? And man, I, you know, we had a conversation about this earlier this week where, you know, in all the times that I ever, you know, run into spiritual problems, I, you know, I don't doubt that the Lord loves me. Right. 
I often doubt whether I love him. There's yeah. so many things throughout my walk and my years as a Christian where there are sins that I want to hold on to. There are behaviors that I want to hold on to. There's ways that I do things that I want to hold on to that I know are not pleasing to the Lord. And rather than saying, oh, you know what, he'll forgive me, the question that he wants me to ask is these questions. Do you love me? Yeah. Do you love me more than these? Are you willing to give them up? And he doesn't say, because you can't be my shepherd until you do. Like he tells, he's still telling Peter, feed my lambs, right? Right. But it's that piercing question where I'm holding on to things that I know are utter rubbish and that are perishing and you know, with my life here on this earth. And I'm trading devotion to the Lord for this garbage. And when I imagine the Lord looking at me and saying, do you love me? Yeah. Ugh. You know, it's convicting. And it would be be burdensome slavery if that's where he stopped. Right. But he's already called me to the table again. He's already set a place for me. He's already called me again and told me, go feed my lambs. You're mine, Sam. But don't let anything capture your heart more than me. Do you love me? That. So he's getting in Peter's business, but it's the most loving thing he could have done at this time. Yeah. Well, then he asks him a second time in verse 16. It says, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Uh, this is very much the same as the uh, – he, mm-hmm. he did drop the comparative more than these. But again, it's still the agapao versus phileo. I mean, they're still mm-hmm. using different words. But I think it's interesting that, that Jesus in the second – exchange here tells him to tend my sheep and the mm-hmm. the the word there is is basically shepherd my sheep mm-hmm. it's like be responsible in every respect for them mm-hmm. it's like he's what jesus did here the second time was he in the first instance he's giving him a specific thing to do feed my sheep feed my lambs and this time he's saying and be responsible for them in every other way it's like mm-hmm. he's really saying the job is much bigger than you think <laughs> yeah and, and, and the way that he asked that question, by dropping the comparison, you almost want to add in the words, Peter, because it's like he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I mean, it's like he's saying, do you love me at all? Like, do yeah. you love me, period? I mean, like that's the end of the question. And Peter responds, you know that I phileo you. And like you said, that that idea, he says, okay, well, I'm still calling you. I want you to tend my sheep. And with that tending the sheep, what the shepherd does, Jesus talked about it. What does the good shepherd do? Gives his life for the sheep. Yeah, he gives his life for the sheep. And so in this series of questions, what the Lord is getting Peter to do is you got to stop comparing yourself to others. You've got to stop measuring yourself as a disciple by what others look like. You've got to stop thinking about you. You've got to start loving other people. And he is calling Peter toward death. He's calling him to die to self, to humble himself, and to, to live for Christ's sake. Um, and that's where Peter will ultimately find freedom. But he's in all of these questions, that's the trajectory that they're going. Yeah. Yes. And then the third question, verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And I've heard it preached many times, and I've saw this in the commentaries too, that they're talking about Peter being grieved because Jesus asked him a third time, mm-hmm. and they're saying this reinforced the three denials, the mm-hmm. three questions. And I think that's true, but I mm-hmm. also think that it means what it says. It's like Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And because he, Jesus changes the word here. Peter, yeah. Jesus says, Peter, are you at least fond of me? And Imagine I think, how crushing that would have been. Yeah, that, and I honestly believe that's – I believe that that's mostly why Peter was grieved here. I understand the th- symbolism of the three denials and the three questions. I, I get that. I understand that. And I, but I'm telling you, it, it, for these people – yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, these commentators who write that kind of stuff, I'm like, do you think for a minute that Peter has forgotten that he denied Jesus three times? Man. It's the only thing he can think of. It's the only thing on his mind. It's why he jumped out of the boat to get to the beach as fast as he could, because he cannot stop thinking about the fact that he denied Jesus three times. He wants nothing more than to be with Jesus. Now, 
this idea that three questions had to remind him, oh, yeah, I did deny Jesus three times, and now I'm getting fired up, and I'm preaching again. (laughs) But I don't believe Peter forgot that, Sam, for even one split second. He remembered every one of those denials. I think what broke Peter's heart here is that Jesus said, well, Peter, are you at least fond of me? Yeah. And and I think with that is, you know, those those first denials – where it's like you can imagine, I mean, having an argument or uh, where you've wronged somebody that you genuinely love. You know, it'd be like my wife saying, "Hey, you know, are you willing to go the distance? Are you like she sees something in me, and it's you know, are you willing to to sacrifice greatly for the sake of this marriage? You know, that's that's one thing, and those questions would be crushing and piercing. But to hear her say, "Do you even like me?" Yeah would rip my heart out. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why G- – and he's – again, he doesn't just say this to bring shame because every time it's followed with, with a I, – I want you on my team. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend to my sheep. You're mine. We're on the team. But Peter's got to answer those questions very honestly, and, you know, I think he does here. He says, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter had amazing love. You know the phileo kind of love for Jesus. He, the fact that he goes out and weeps bitterly after those denials shows you that he loved this guy with his emotions and everything else. But what Jesus is after is, will you have the kind of love that I've shown for you? That agapao that says, "I will lay down all things in covenant and relationship for you. I will sacrifice for you." And that's where. Peter being very honest because he's just come through a season where he thought he would. Right. But then it was revealed that he couldn't in that moment. He's being honest. I, I don't want to say I agapayo you because I just failed you in that camp. But when it gets to the phileo, that's where Peter's crushed. And he's like, man, you know all things. Search me. You know that I'm fond of you. You know that I consider you my greatest friend. And that's where, you know, Jesus is going to turn and, and in a sense, encourage him with some very hard news. Yeah. Yeah, verse 18, the very hard news. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Hmm. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Um, yeah, this was a prophecy to Peter about mm-hmm. what's going to happen to him eventually, and I think, and I think that Peter it, it understood that, and we're going to, and I, I think we're going to see that next in this exchange that involves John, mm-hmm. that that Peter knew what Jesus was talking about here. Peter understood that Jesus was talking about. You know, I'm not going to get to die on my own terms. I'm not mm-hmm. going to get to die peacefully at home and in bed. I, I think that I think that every one of us has um, that like desire to sort of close your eyes, you know, at night and wake up in heaven. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. there was a song about sure. that. Um, and wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, no pain, no suffering, no just. I went to bed and the next thing I know, I'm, I'm here with Jesus and that would be wonderful. And we all want that kind of exit. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, Jesus is telling him that's not what's going to happen to you. And, and when he says you're going to dress yourself, you walked where you wanted, you dressed yourself, but when you're old, you stretch out your hands, you know, and it says this is the kind of death he's going to follow. Tradition tells us and multiple early church fathers tell us that when he went to, uh, Rome, during the reign of Nero, who was viciously persecuting the church and everyone else, that he was arrested and he was sentenced to death. And on the way to his execution, he made the request to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord, and he was crucified upside down uh, on a Roman cross. And so you got to imagine, you know, between where this story is right now (laughs) – and where the story ends, Peter gained some agapao. Yeah. You know, that all in love that you can do with me, whatever you want. My life is poured out for you because I see you as far more beautiful than anything this world could offer me. And so I'm not going to run. I'm not going to hide. Peter will do amazingly bold things. And he'll have some more stumbles, by the way, before it's all done. Yeah. Um, 
But he recognized that his call from the Lord was secure. And that, you know, the Lord took the phileo kind of love, that affection, which, you know, probably if you're listening to this podcast, you got that. You think Jesus is beautiful. You want more of him. You think he's wonderful. But when he comes to you and he says, do you love me? Then give up that stuff. Yeah. Do this hard thing. Go sacrifice for your neighbor. When he starts getting in our business and saying, do you agapao me? That's where we go, ooh, um, um. Yeah. And we start shaking. And the Lord will take that phileo kind of love, and over the course of your life, he will begin to form you. And he's going to grow your faith, and he's going to show you how he's far more precious than any of that other stuff that we chase after. To where, you know, it's, it's like the scriptures say, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Like, he's working on Peter. Mm-hmm. He knows that he is saying to Peter right now exactly what he needs to hear that's ultimately going to make him into the rock, the one who does these amazing things to advance the gospel all over the world. These questions that cut Peter to the core had to be asked. And occasionally, there are times where we need to stop and say, man, look how I'm living. Yeah. Look at what I love more than him. Do I love him? Do I agapao him? What is he worthy of? Can I let go of this? Lord, help me. By your spirit, help me. Because I don't. And if we really love him, if we phileo him, that should, that should hurt. You know, yeah. That should convict us to where we're like, I want to get there. I want to love him like that. Lord, help me. That's where Peter is now at this point of the story. And I love that the Lord ends this. With those those words, follow me. Guess mm-hmm. where guess where else that happened? At his call. Yeah. Follow me. You know, it's like I still want you. You're mm-hmm. mine. You're my guy. I love that. And by the way, if you're listening to it, that's the faithfulness of the Lord. Peter's confidence and his security is not based on whether or not Peter's good enough. <laughs> it's just not. It's it's the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord chased after Peter. The Lord sustained Peter. The Lord continues to call Peter. And that's what he does for us even when we prove unworthy to be called his shepherds or his disciples. He chases us and he calls us again and again and again. He's that good. Yeah. And then uh, if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, well, this, you know, and, and Peter got it here. But I'm going to tell you, we have one more exchange here to remind you that Peter is a man like we are. He's a person like we are. Peter needed one more poke here before he really understood what was going on. Because what Peter did in the next thing, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. So Peter and Jesus were walking and talking, and John was trailing after them. Uh, so the one, Nosy. yeah, following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, "Lord, who is it that is going to betray you?" Just in case you don't know who John was talking about when he's talking <laughs> about himself, you can go back and check that other passage, and it will tell you. Uh, verse twenty-one: When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, "Lord, what about this man?" Like. Okay, you just told me I was going to die a horrible death. What I want to know is, how about this guy? What's going to happen to him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. (laughs) Stop trying to compare yourself to others, Peter. Yeah. So do you love me more than these? He didn't quite get it. <laughs> Peter almost got there with do you love me more than these? Yeah. But Are you going to mo- try him the same way? Yeah. Or is he going to have to do this? Yep. Yeah. Totally. Totally yeah. am like that. Yeah. I, I, that's, but that's so me. It's mm-hmm. like Jesus would sit down and explain something to me, and I would listen to him, and I would go, got it. And then I would ask him something that would make him go, all right, let's start at the top. <laughs> and then we go through this again. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just, it seems, it seems so often that I just don't understand it on the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very quick to pick up details about technology. I, you know, one of the things that I have, I've had a 40 plus year career in technology. Even today, I still work with technology related to my job, but I've been programmer, network engineer, website builder, uh, director of IT. I've, I've done everything that you can do practically with, res- I built computers, ran a retail computer store. If it involved technology, I did it both on the consumer level and on the enterprise level. I worked 
all over the place doing that kind of stuff. And one of the reasons I was always so good at it was that I could instantly comprehend something about technology. It's like I could just pick it up. It's just boom. Mm -hmm. It just clicked right away. When it comes to interpersonal things, when it comes to people – You've got to, you have to spell it out for me, <laughs> tattoo it on my forehead, and then beat me with a two by four until the words sink in because I just am so dense sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I listen, I look at this with Peter, Sam, and I'm like, thank you that I can see this because mm-hmm. I need to know that Jesus will answer the question again. What is it to you? You follow me. Yeah. And, you know, there's this instinct and we, and we talked about it a little bit before, but, we measure ourselves incessantly against other people. So, you know, if, if I consider myself good again at tennis, but then I go out and I'm, I'm paired with three people in a doubles match who are all better than me, I suddenly feel entirely inferior and I don't want to play anymore, right? Right. Or, you know, if I go out and I feel good at tennis and they put me with three people who are terrible, all of a sudden I'm resting on my laurels and I'm like, look at me. My, my level of talent has not changed. But my self-perception changes based on who's around me. And in the church, we do that all the time. Yep. We, we, if we are the most engaged, if we're leading the Bible study, if we're doing you know, more service at least than that guy, it's like we rest on our laurels and go, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. You know, Jesus is lucky to have me. And no, that's not, <laughs> that is not the way that, that he wants us to be. Like you are called to him. He has your story, and it doesn't matter what he's doing with anyone else around you. Right. You go to your greatest potential to pour yourself out for the kingdom of God out of love and gratitude, and don't worry what other people are doing. Right. And it's not about, number one, it's not about how your neighbor judges your performance. And here's, here's the surprising one that we're really bad at. It's not about how you are judging your performance. It's about how the Lord sees you. And the Lord has given you a calling. He's called you to grow in your faith. He's called you into community and accountability with others and to serve others, you know, and into a gathered group of disciples. Like he's calling you to these things. And if you feel inferior to somebody else, it doesn't matter what they think. And as Paul says in, what is it, Second Corinthians, where he's like, you know, they want to put me on trial. I don't care what they think. I don't even care what I think, but God is the only judge. <laughs> like, how liberating is that? Stop being the ultimate arbiter and judge of all things you are. One of the great liberating forces of Christianity is you have one judge, and it's not your conscience. It's not the opinions of others. It is the Lord. And so when God comes to Peter and says, hey, this is what's what I what's coming? This is what I have for you. And Peter's like, blah, 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 what about him? <laughs> you know? The Lord's like, No, I'm don't worry about him. I have the plan for you. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, one of the other things, I noticed two things as we were reading. You know how Jesus is referring him to Simon and those questions? Mm-hmm. In the in the intermittent, John keeps referring to him as Peter. And so it's giving giving it away that he is restored because John is telling you, no, his name is Peter. <laughs> he yeah. he did recover. Yeah. And the other thing that I love is just just for those who've never heard that before, in John's gospel, he repeatedly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What I love about that is this shows the mature disciple. What what Jesus is trying to get Peter to do is to say, Peter, stop thinking about Peter. Like, let it go. I want you to serve me by loving them. Pour yourself out. Die, die to self for them to show love for me. It's it, You're removed from the equation. And when John is writing and he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's purely out of humility. He doesn't, he doesn't want his name being used to, to gain glory. The only thing he wants us to know about him is, is that Jesus loved him because that's the center of his identity. Mm. That is the maturity of, of, a, of, a, of a grown apostle. You know what? You know, Peter's struggling with what do people think about me, what are things, and John is writing, you know what, I, I don't even want to put myself in the story because the only thing that matters about my identity right now is that Jesus loved me. Yeah. That's the basis of my value. That's what my name is going to be in my own gospel, yeah. the disciple whom Jesus loved. How cool is that? Yeah. So then uh, verse 23 uh, through 25, a little bit of housekeeping here at the end. John writes, uh, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. 
Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Um, the death of John is uh, – Tertullian uh, wrote that that they tried to boil John in oil, um, mm-hmm. that he miraculously survived that. Um, the, uh, the tradition tells us that he died, I guess, in exile on the Isle of Patmos mm-hmm. and, and that he was buried in Ephesus. Um, so we have these – you know, that we don't – what we do know is that John's death was different than Peter's, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, that it wasn't the same thing. So, um, but there was an early church rumor or, or teaching or suggestion that, uh, that John, much like Enoch and Isaiah, that John was taken to heaven without dying. And, and we don't, mm-hmm. we don't, that's just like apocryphal. It's like that was just a story. Yeah. I don't put much well, yeah. stock in that. Jesus says, if it's my will that he remain until I come. Right. He didn't say it was his will. And so so John is quick to say, who you got to imagine is so tired of living in a broken world. He's like, that's not true. That's not true. I'm going to die. I'm going to (laughs) die. You know, he's writing in the pen. Don't believe that. I'm out of here. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but it, you know, it gives the Da Vinci Code something to put in their movie. Yeah, it does. John exactly never right. actually died. <laughs> He's still around. You know, John invented the internet. Uh, I don't know. So there'll be there'll be something <laughs> like that. But um, but it is something that you know this this sort of the the danger of competition. Um, I do think that's something that is a real plague in the church today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, you know. One of the things that you and I have talked about over time in terms of, of, of things that are wrong with the church and society and the world is we talk a lot about this sort of victim mentality or this kind of thing where mm-hmm. everything is divided into one of two camps. You're either a victim or you're a victimizer. You're either an oppressor mm-hmm. or you're oppressed. You're, you know, it's not possible to have anything in between. It's not possible to be nuanced. If you're not oppressing somebody, well, then you must be one of the oppressed. If you're not victimizing somebody, well, then you must be a victim. I'm like, no. <laughs> no, that doesn't. And and yeah. so this thing of this thing of trying to figure out what little box we belong in and put ourselves in that box and say this determines who we are and we and we're and we're stuck there. This is it. If you're mm-hmm. one of these, that's all you are. You know, I'm like that is so anti the gospel. The gospel Amen. is that whatever you were, you will change. Mm-hmm. And to that end, you know. The thing that drives me crazy when we try to classify everything as victim, victimizer, oppressed, oppressor, um, you know, there's injustices in the world. We can't turn a blind eye to that. But one of the things that the gospel is so powerful at doing, you know, there's two things that bring people together powerfully. A common interest. So, you know, hey, we both love the Gators or whatever, right. you know. In Who the wouldn't case love of the Gators? Christina, Tim Tebow. We, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, you know. In Christianity, we both, our greatest passion, our greatest desire is Jesus. And so we may differ on a million other things. If that's our chief desire, it brings us together, right? Right. And so that's one way people come together. But the other way that people come together, and perhaps even more powerfully, is when they are enduring a common suffering. So, you know, there's a reason why in the Bible it, it talks about, you know, partakers of suffering, fellowship of the suffering, you know, like, because what Jesus talks about, a greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He, he suffers for us. He enters into our sufferings. Emmanuel, he's with us. And so one of the things that binds all of humanity together, all of us, I don't care what race you are, what background you are, how much money you make is all of us are suffering under the fallen effects of the world. We, we know fear. We know depression. We have loved ones who've died of disease. We, we all go through these common sufferings, and the Bible comes to us and says, you are all oppressed. 
We are all oppressed in a broken world by a great enemy that one common Savior has smashed. And now I can go to all of my brothers that are in this common suffering. And it is a brotherhood and a sisterhood of suffering where we can come together and commiserate together and share in these sufferings. And what all of this victim-victimizer mentality is, is it says, no, 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 that oppression is secondary. You're my enemy because you fit this class or this group or this race or this whatever gender. And it tears down any chance, any chance of ultimate unity because it establishes dividing lines and things that you cannot possibly change. I cannot atone for being male or being white. And it establishes dividing lines that I can't ever overcome. But I desperately, desperately want to be, you know, in the fellowship of sufferings with as many people who will recognize it as possible. I want to love. I want to run under the common banner. And I hate, I think it's, I'll be honest, I think it's satanic that we divide humanity in these categories. And you notice the fruit of it. It's just more hate. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, that is that's a good word. Uh, even though the last one was hate, that's a good word to end on because <laughs> you know that's what. But that's what this is about here at the end of John twenty one is it's calling us away from that competitiveness with each other and it's calling us to that unity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, the message that Jesus has for you, the rich guy, follow me. For me, the poor guy or the middle class guy, I don't know, what am I? You, follow me. It's the same message. Jesus has the same mm-hmm. message for everybody, rich or poor, black or white, fat or thin, old or young, doesn't matter. You, follow me. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, I mean, that's where, we should, uh, that's where we should end this. Follow him. <laughs> Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today, that it's been profitable for you. Uh, we would like to encourage you to keep up with this series of messages. If you're not attending uh, Rio Vista Community Church and you're somebody outside the church that's following along with the podcast, get the messages also. Those are also available at our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O Vista church.com or in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. You can also find them on YouTube and on Facebook, on the Rio Vista Church channel, on the Rio Vista Church page. We, we put them everywhere. So shouldn't have any trouble finding them. Um, if you'd like to correspond with us, you can send us email at outofwater at riovistachurch.com. If you'd like to see the back catalog of all of these podcasts, you can find that also at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Sam and I will be back next week with yet another in the series from the life of Peter, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.